This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. I think it's like uh, public speaking and sex. The more you do it, the better you get at it. Are listening to Front Office Features, and I am Rob Crane, where each week we have a discussion with a sports executive in an effort to take you behind the curtain to learn more about the inner workings of the business and provide insights to help start and grow your sports business career. Today, our guest on Front Office Features is the one and only Larry Lucchino. Larry is the CEO Emeritus of the Boston Red Sox was the CEO and president of both the Baltimore Orioles and the San Diego Padres. He's had an incredible career. He gives also some wonderful advice about written and oral communication. He dives deep into his mentor, Edward Bennett Williams. I mean, this is a guy who worked on the Nixon-Watergate case with Hillary Clinton. He has a, a crazy career. He talks about how important preparation, preparation, preparation is. I think he calls himself pathological about it. Uh, And I just think that those are wonderful pieces of advice uh, that you can take in. Uh, And remember, this is a guy who uh, saved Fenway Park, built Camden Yards, and has just had an amazing career. So I hope you enjoy our interview with Larry Lucchino the CEO Emeritus of the Boston Red Sox. Hello, you're listening to Front Office Features with Rob Crane. I am here today with CEO Emeritus of the Boston Red Sox, Larry Lucchino, former CEO of the San Diego Padres, president of the Baltimore Orioles, and a long and illustrious career. Larry, thank you very much for being here today. Okay, Rob, um, but I think you know more about these topics than I do. Um, you just cited my career, but uh, your history and uh, front office roles go back a long way as well. So this should be interesting. This should be interesting. This should be interesting. So I really do uh, appreciate you uh, joining front office features. So thank you very much. Um, you know, Larry, what's uh, what I always find interesting about you is you are a grammarian. <laughs> you, yeah, I've been accused of worse things, I you've guess. You've been accused yeah. of worse things. But uh, commas, semicolons, everything. Tell me about this Strunk and White book that used to give interns the yeah. elements of style. Yeah. it was. Everyone knows that it's important to have some other dimension uh, if you're going to work in a uh, sports uh, c- capacity or in a, the sports industry. Um, everyone... Uh, loves the games, the sports, presumably, but it's like saying that uh, I like hamburgers, therefore I want to work in a 
butcher shop. You know, it's not good enough. You've got to have some other skills and some other um, abilities. And I find that uh, oral and written communication are, of course, fundamental, particularly written um, in business. Uh, I think the uh, uh, and the more people can realize that short, uh, clear uh, sentences the clarity in writing is the most important goal to achieve, and that's one of the uh, fundamental tenets of uh, Strunkenwark's book on uh, on writing. And it struck me that it was appropriate to give it to uh, uh, people who were beginning their sports careers so that they could at least recognize the priority assigned to clarity and comfort in writing uh, in any organization that I was involved in, it's a it's it's a skill that I think everyone can improve upon as they uh, as they go upon Absolutely. their career. I'm a, a much better writer, I think, now than I was at interesting you know, at, good at nineteen. I think it's like. Uh, Public speaking and sex. The more you do it, the better you get at it. And uh, yeah. they, uh, you must be great at everything. <laughs> no, I have believe me, profound shortcomings. They, um, so you were a Princeton guy, went to uh, Yale Law. What I find uh, just crazy is your Yale Law cl- uh, class had some incredible people along with you in your Yale Law class. Who was in that Yale Law class? Well, uh, I think you think of people who I was in law school with. Uh, right. uh, that includes uh, Hillary Clinton. It includes, of course, Bill Clinton. Um, there were some um, uh, remarkable uh, people whom you may never have heard of. It was an important part of my education uh, because... My first day, I met a professor, uh, and he said, why are you talking to me? Go out there and talk to your classmates. You will learn more from them than you will ever learn from any of us who are faculty members. I thought it was pretty uh, uh, glib advice, but it proved to be really true, and I urge people to think about that in whatever institutions uh, they are a part of, uh, that you uh, can learn more from your classmates, your teammates, your uh, uh, the people that you work with uh, than uh, you can from the people who lead you. Spectacular advice. I never heard of that, but that mm-hmm. was great. And so you're, you didn't come out going to Yale Law School and be like, I'm definitely going to go into sports. You were working on like the impeachment? Of I was. Richard My first Nixon. job after law school was the impeachment of uh, Richard Nixon, the uh, the. the uh, uh, impeachment inquiry that was put together by the House of Representatives, and they were looking for young uh, litigators uh, to uh, jump in. And frankly, I was so interested in Watergate and its aftermath that I would have paid them for the job, but they were paying me to listen to White House tapes and to focus on the Watergate aftermath, as we called it. The cover-up was much too emotional a word, so we called it the Watergate and its aftermath. Wow. And then, so tell me, you went from working on Watergate and Richard Nixon, and you met your mentor, Edward Bennett Williams, soon after yeah. that. How did that uh, come Well, about? I went to, uh, I was thinking the impeachment inquiry ended rather abruptly. Uh, we were deprived of the trial that we were uh, expecting to have in the Senate. And, uh, and I had to uh, scramble and, and find a job with a law firm. Um, 
I remember talking to John Doerr, who was the head of the impeachment inquiry, and he said something about Williams and Connolly being an extraordinary uh, place to be. It was then called Williams, Connolly, and Califano. Um, and he said, if you can uh, uh, get yourself there, uh, it will be a, uh, a great institution for you to, to grow in and be a part of. And so uh, I went there, um, and uh, uh, I never thought of Edward Van Well, I certainly thought of him as a mentor, but I never used that term. But maybe that was because that was the 70s, and, and yeah. this is a different century, and that term was not as commonplace. But uh, I went there, and, uh, and I met him the first day. We sat and talked uh, right through lunch for uh, an hour or two. We were able to uh, talk easily and had some common interests, including uh, uh, sports and uh, and litigation. And um, and uh, so while I went there to be a, uh, a litigator, not a sports executive, it was coincidental that shortly after I arrived, he brought the Red Sox uh, into his law firm as a client. Uh, they'd been handled by another law firm, and uh, when there was a Red Sox piece of litigation that developed, uh, I went to uh, work uh, on that at, at uh, his suggestion, uh, probably and simply because I had had some sports experience through college. I was a varsity athlete at Princeton, and uh, Lukina said something like, oh, you can, you can talk to these guys. You'll be able to deal with them. And so... There's another lesson there, life lesson there, and if you're given a chance to do one thing, if you play 10 minutes, do something good in that 10 minutes. If you do one little case, do something good in that one little case, and it'll, it will lead to further responsibilities and opportunities. And so I did, uh, uh, I think, uh, handle the first case uh, with some degree of satisfaction to him, and, uh, and he simply asked me to do more and more. And I was pleased that a couple of years later, uh, he, uh, I guess about a, a year, two years later, he bought the uh, uh, the Baltimore Orioles. So he was both president of the Redskins and the uh, uh, president of the Baltimore Orioles. And uh, I assumed at that point he would assign a second lawyer to the to the Orioles. He said, "No, you can do both." So for um, eight to ten years, I represented both the Redskins and the Orioles. And uh, gradually, beca uh, 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 had it more uh, increased my involvement in the Orioles because Ed was the uh, uh, sole one hundred percent owner, and he could assign me to different spots and projects and, and issues. And you always talk about yes, right? Is saying yes. Oh yes, yeah. uh, that's been one of our marketing slogans. Uh, we're in the yes business. But you're uh, in the yes business when you're an up and coming uh, sports executive too, because the more that you say yes, the more opportunities. I think that's get. right. If you're a young uh, up and coming sports executive, the idea of uh, uh, saying yes to an assignment uh, is uh, highly desirable, and. Uh, and doing small things lead to bigger things, lead to bigger things. Right. So you talk about Edward there, and, uh, you know, he's taught you so many life lessons, it's hard to cite. If you were to say, you know, what are what are some of the biggest ones that, uh, that Edward has well, instilled, well, that, that he instilled well, in you? Well, things that were instilled in me by Ed Williams as well as by the law firm and many other uh, uh, 
partners in the law firm, uh, people that uh, who were an instrumental in my growth. I mean, I learned about uh, preparation, of course. I had uh, some sense of it, but not the uh, almost pathological sense that I developed. Uh, preparation, preparation, preparation. I learned the value of um, integrity, probity. You know, you had to be the guy who was honest with the court, honest with the uh, opposition. And uh, um, I learned the value, of course, of fighting uh, uh, some kind of litigative grit. Uh, I learned the value of thoroughness, but I think a lot of law firms try to inculcate that into their young lawyers, a sense of thoroughness. so those are among the things. From Williams, of course, I, I saw a, a consummate lawyer, but also a, a, a funny, um, talented man in many other dimensions. I once asked uh, his wife, Agnes, near the end of uh, Edward Bennett Williams' life, uh, what Ed would attribute his enormous success to. Actually, she, I'm sorry, I got it wrong. She asked me what she thought I believed its uh, enormous success was attributable to. And I, of course, said things like, uh, uh, I mean, he was a uh, an intellectual. He was driven. He was strongly prepared. She said, no, let me stop you, Larry. Let me stop you. Uh, he would say it was his quote, gypsy instinct for people, end quote. And uh, and if, I guess at that point one could use that phrase. It might be politically incorrect now. But uh, he did have an instinct for people, uh, both in the courtroom, in the sports arena, and others, that uh, was uh, exceptional, exceptional, and he had an exceptional sense of humor. That's awesome. That's, 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 uh, you, you say, the uh, we heard the quote, um, you know, don't tell me about the deal points of the deal, oh, how great the deal is. Tell yeah. me about the people. Yeah, know. yeah. Well, that that actually came from someone else. Uh, it was one of uh, when I was uh, considering my first uh, modest, believe me, extremely modest investment. Uh, I was talking to an old uh, grizzled lawyer in his 80s, uh, business lawyer, and I started regaling him with details of the business deal. And he's the one who stopped me and said, stop it. Don't tell me how good the deal is. Tell me who the people are. That's and I've tried to relay that uh, 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 all my life. That's and, fantastic. Uh, but there are a million other lessons. I mean, Ed Williams talked about, uh, used a, a courtroom um, concept, which is uh, nothing is often a good thing, uh, often a good thing to do and always a brilliant thing to say. That was a courtroom uh, admonition, but applies to life and business as well. I'm going to have to take uh, more part of the, uh, you know, nothing is the uh, right thing to say. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so you're at the Redskins, right? And uh, a young Springfield College alum, like myself, comes into your office and uh, a guy named Charlie Cashley. Tell me how you paid Charlie a fortune to get started in uh, at the Redskins, didn't you? You know, millions and millions. Of oh years. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think the number was actually zero point zero zero. Charlie was uh, eager. I was I was still at the law firm, but I was representing the Redskins, and so I did much of my work at the law firm, occasionally out to Redskin Park. But uh, I met Charlie, and uh, he got into the uh, game by. Uh, um, um, what's the right word, dare I say, uh, 
never giving up his his quest uh, dealing with George Allen, who was the uh, coach and general manager. And uh, Allen told him two or three times he didn't have a budget for him, didn't have room for him, didn't have a role for him. And Charlie would not take no for an answer. And he finally started a job uh, with the Redskins and George Allen for the handsome princely sum of uh, 0.00 and he worked and proved himself so indispensable that the next year Allen uh, found a space for him in the budget and uh, and his whole career started from his persistence and his uh, intensity and his uh, commitment. Yeah, these, uh, he, I had the opportunity to work with him with the Houston Texans. Oh, yeah. Uh, my first internship. Yeah. And uh, he was a great guy. He yeah, was, I wonder, was a very guy. nice, very nice man. And uh, But also I think the lesson from him is uh, if this is what you want, um, the sports career, uh, go for it. And don't just go for it with uh, one hand or one foot. Jump in and, uh, and make it happen. Jump in, make it happen. Love it. So you head to uh, Baltimore, and Baltimore was, you know, everyone knows Baltimore now with the uh, with Camden Yards, and you had um, a vision that nobody had at the time, you know, a traditional, old-fashioned ballpark with modern amenities. You're the only person that, that saw that, you know, this, you know, pioneering can well, be a lonely road. So <laughs> what inspired you uh, to... Uh, to have that vision, what made it to say, you know, we've got to have this old-fashioned downtown ballpark? Well, Rob, you said it exactly right, a traditional old-fashioned ballpark with modern amenities. Uh, the preliminary concept before that was a baseball park, not a combination park. What really happened is we got away from the notion of combo facilities that were concrete donuts built uh, in the 60s and 70s, and we were in the... Uh, uh, early 80s, and the Colts had just left town. They had left Baltimore in the middle of the night, and uh, so uh, I remember having a conversation with Ed about about that, and said, uh, "Why are we uh, pursuing a f- combination football stadium and baseball park? They are so different. They require so many different uh, uh, architectural." compromises and operational compromises why uh let's look i said to ed in the early 80s look at the best teams in 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 baseball the best franchises and i remember citing the red sox uh the yankees the dodgers um the um cubs and at that time i cited the uh detroit tigers because they were very powerful and successful team in that period and I said what do they all have in common they all play in a baseball only facility not the compromises that are required in a uh, in a joint uh, ballpark stadium activity for football and baseball and he said I remember this quite vividly he said uh, so you don't want to build uh, one 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 facility you want to build two one for us in baseball now, and if, and if football ever comes back to Baltimore, then there'd be a second one. He said, uh, I'll tell you what, why don't you go public with that uh, and uh, run it up the flagpole, see if anyone salutes. But whatever you do, don't mention my name because you're going to get crucified. <laughs> and so as it turned out, I did not get crucified. There was a, uh, 
an, an acceptance of the notion that a baseball park uh, for baseball made more sense than a combination stadium, particularly when you didn't have a football team. Right. So uh, far from being uh, crucified, uh, we were encouraged uh, by the state of Maryland and certainly by the media to pursue that. And uh, I do remember the uh, uh, Speaker of the House in Maryland saying to me, my mother objects to uh, one facility. Now you're asking for two? <laughs> uh, you got a lot of nerve. Um, anyway, it, uh, it was a, an idea whose time had come, and uh, we, we preached the uh, traditional baseball gospel sacraments in a baseball-only facility. Interestingly enough, we used Fenway Park and Wrigley, excuse me, Fenway Park and Ebbets Field in Brooklyn as two of the principal um, um, examples we would follow, and uh, and that worked out uh, uh, very well. Then when we came back uh, uh, towards uh, later in my career to renovating Fenway Park, we kind of used uh, uh, the Oriole Park at Camden Yards as an example because it had a bunch of modern amenities that we didn't have at a traditional old-fashioned park. So we used modern amenities from Camden for Fenway, and we used the traditional old-fashioned ballpark with its irregularities and quirks and all of that in, uh, for, uh, as a model for Camden Yards. So it's kind of uh, uh, it went both ways. And you grew up in Pittsburgh, right? Go yeah. on the game. That well, I'm glad sailed. you mentioned that because I should have mentioned that. That is, uh, I grew up and I saw a baseball team go from a quaint, uh, historic uh, ballpark in Forbes Field to a uh, cookie cutter, uh, concrete um, uh, stadium uh, used for football and baseball simultaneously, and that was Three Rivers. And so I had seen the degradation, in my view, that happened to baseball and baseball fan experiences uh, up close and personal uh, in, in Pittsburgh. So that was certainly a, uh, a part of the uh, my view. My father always tells me uh, stories. He used to sneak in to Forbes Field uh, to go watch Roberto Clemente play. Uh, and then sit out in uh, in right field to uh, to wow. watch the world play. It must, maybe it was him that I saw when I was thinking it. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I'm going to go jump. Yeah. Let's watch that guy jump the fence. Yeah, my brother and I used to go in the sixth and seventh inning when they opened the gates to let people out, and we would just walk in and uh, pray for extra innings. And pray for extra <laughs> innings. That's great. They um, so I remember you telling me a story. Uh, you know, people. This is a new vision, right? The old-fashioned, traditional, modern ballpark with the uh, modern amenities. And HOK or one of the uh, architects comes in and shows you new Comiskey Field, one of those yeah, uh, models. One of those models. Yeah. Tell us what happened to the model. Well, we had our, our own views, uh, and architects, like lots of professionals, tend to give you their most recent success as a model for the next assignment. And uh, you've got to be wary of that. And uh, when I saw uh, the uh, model for Comiskey, I didn't like it very much. It wasn't uh, the kind of ballpark that uh, we wanted. Um, and uh, I started tearing it apart. Like physically it, ripping it, 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 it apart. saying, look at these uh, extraneous stairs over here. Why do you need those? And uh, look at this uh, upper deck. Why do you need that? Literally and ripping I, and the I foam was, uh, and cardboard. And I was ripping the, uh, the foam and cardboard piece apart. 
and one of the uh, architects for HOK, a uh, really talented guy named Joe Spear, said to me, uh, Lucino, do you know how much this model costs? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. Uh, I found out that it was uh, $75,000 or $100,000, but that didn't uh, deter me from tearing it apart. <laughs> That's great. So you go to San Diego after uh, Baltimore. So oh, yeah. My ma- one of my, I, I, I look at it and I go, you know, you're in San Diego, and you had all this success with uh, Camden Yards and Utah Street. Why not just do that again in San Diego? Why not because just- that was a lesson, of right. course, we, uh, we, we learned with uh, Camden Yards and Comiskey. You don't do the latest, the last thing. You try to come up with uh, a, a new and different innovative idea. I think I've said over and over that uh, a traditional fashion ballpark with the irregularities and modern amenities was a single uh, original idea I've ever brought to baseball. I hope I might go to the Hall of Fame for that. Oh, I don't know about that, but uh, you're nice to say that. But the um, um, it's a it's a great idea. Hiring January Smith in 1989 was also a great idea uh, to uh, uh, give uh, life and and meaning and detail and content to that concept or those concepts and. Uh, uh, but uh, when we uh, we never really thought about it because the cities were so different, it's important that you look at the uh, cities uh, where franchises are not as fungible. But you got to look at them uh, to, to see how different they are culturally, historically, and uh, how different the franchise is within that culture. Uh, there are. Uh, Tier one franchises in great markets. There are tier two franchises in uh, in great markets, and tier two franchises in not very um, attractive markets. So uh, what I'm saying is that uh, there is a uh, a gradation of maybe franchises from uh, tier one, tier two, tier three, tier four as well as different cities, different markets, different cultures, different histories. And I don't think anybody would, would uh, immediately think that Baltimore, Maryland, and San Diego, uh, California are mirror images of each other yeah. in, in, in any way. So we tried to build a ballpark that looked and tasted and smelled and felt like San Diego with outdoor concourses, palm trees, bougain, bougainvillea, all sorts of things, whereas we wanted an industrial-look ballpark uh, in the heart of downtown um, Baltimore, for with a great warehouse in the right, outfield, um, you know, for Baltimore, that one seemed to fit one, the other seemed to fit the other, and um, and I urge anybody uh, uh, working on uh, any kind of uh, ballpark or other architectural project, not to get caught up in the familiarity of the last success, but be uh, just. Uh, uh, analyze the circumstances that you face particularly in the market area geography that you're in and see what fits there so saying what fits then you go to boston and i was in college there in um in uh you know 2000 2004 and that whole time that there was you know this big campaign save fenway because there's a big push to demolish Fenway and build a brand new ballpark. So, can you take me? Your you you get to Fenway, uh, the Red Sox in two thousand and three. 
take me 2001. 2001, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, late 2001. Late 2001, my apologies. Mm -hmm. Uh, Late 2001. Take me in a meeting. I'm a fly on a wall. It's you and Tom Werner and John Henry and Janet. Um, What are you guys talking about? How did the decision come uh, to save Fenway Park rather than uh, go with the movement of potentially building uh, a new ballpark in Boston? Uh, why we are riding so fast through my uh, various jobs, right. <laughs> I've got to keep up with you. The speed's pretty quick. Um, we, when we came in the end of 2001, the, uh, the Red Sox were for sale in sort of a public auction, and there were about six groups interested. We were the only group that said we, we had a plan to preserve Fenway Park. The other people had kind of what I joked jokingly called edifice complexes. Huh. They wanted to have an edifice. They needed a new edifice like Camden Yards and this progeny. And uh, so they were talking about other kinds of ballpark. Maybe because John, Tom, Janet and I, Charles Steinberg were all uh, um, um, actively involved in baseball, we, we appreciated more than most the value, the charm, the appeal of a cathedral like Fenway Park. And uh, so we thought it was important to try to preserve it rather than to immediately shift into a, uh, uh, you know, just uh, destroy and replace. And, uh, and we said that we were going to do whatever we could to preserve it to see if we can add modern amenities <laughs> to the traditional ballpark and create the, uh, the kind of fan appeal that we thought was necessary. So uh, uh, Charles and Janet were two of the first people we hired, uh, and uh, we started uh, uh, renovating uh, Fenway Park immediately. The first year we put in uh, dugout seats, um, and we put in uh, green monster seats, we put in right field roof seats, we put in uh, uh, a new... Uh, uh, pavilion level. Uh, we did all sorts of things, and and each was greeted with a uh, high degree of uh, of acceptance and excitement. So we thought we were on the right path. And a couple of years after that, and the success we had, we simply declared that we were committed long term towards a, a long term. Uh, renovation of Fenway Park. I remember the green monster seats were like, wait, what? They're going to put seats on top of the monster? Yeah, we were lucky to have a, uh, a, a visionary and a supportive mayor in Tom Menino. He was exceptional for us to work with. And uh, I remember when uh, I, w- I went to him and talked to him about the green monster, it was about 2003, 2004, and he said, are you crazy, Larry? Now people like it the way it is. They like the 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 netting up there. They like the uh, they don't need seats up there. I'll tell you what. I'll let you do it just because you guys want to do it so much. And but in five years, I predict you'll come back to me and say we want to take those seats. No down. kidding. He thought you were nuts. Yeah, yeah. He actually did, and he uh, and he used to tell that story on himself uh, later on when he talked about how. Uh, how he worked hand in glove with us, even though he profoundly disagreed with some of the decisions we were making about the redesign of the ballpark. Then the Green Monster was his favorite example. I said they'll be back to my desk in <laughs> less than five years and demanding that we take those seats down. 
boy, how wrong I was. That's uh, that's great. And the, the Fenway Park, I, I remember. Um, so I grew up in uh, outside of Pittsburgh, and I went my that's first right, games. One of the things I like about you. <laughs> yeah. uh, I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> one of the things uh, I remember going to the games when I was a kid to Three River Stadium. And I just thought, you know, the concrete bowl in vast parking lots. Yeah. I just thought that's where how everyone yeah. went to baseball yeah. games. Then I moved to Boston in the early 90s. And I remember going to the first fe- uh, game at Fenway Park. And it's like, wait, what? Yeah. We're here, yeah. right? Yeah. You take yeah. a subway and then all of a sudden yeah. you're in yeah. these neighborhood yeah. streets and then you're there. And it was mind-blowing experience to me. And what you guys did at Fenway is just made that experience uh, uh, so much. Uh, so well, much thank you, Rob. But I would say, for, from my point of view, what's uh, most critical is we made major improvements in the in the uh, facility, in the seating, in the uh, hospitality. But we made major changes. We invested uh, almost three hundred million dollars in the renovation of Fenway over about a ten-year period, and. Uh, Yet we were determined to uh, do no harm. Indeed, we took the uh, first part of the uh, uh, of the uh, medical. Uh, it's called the Hippocratic Oath. Uh, doctors take, and I made people take it to, with regard to Fenway. Do no harm. Do no harm. And and so the fact that we could do all of this and invest so much in it without damaging or diminishing its uh, ambiance, its, its coolness, its age, was, I think, the uh, uh, the great accomplishment there. I, I, I thoroughly agree. And then when you guys came up with the most beloved ballpark in America, I think just think that. Well, yeah, that. it's funny. We called it that. I, I read that in a book by Kurt Smith on ballparks um, where he, see, he said that the Yankee Stadium, built in 23, 24, may have been the most historic ballpark in his opinion, uh, Wrigley Field, um, resisting change as much as it, it did, uh, became in some ways the prettiest ballpark. But he said, unquestionably, Fenway Park is the most beloved. And that was all I need to hear him say. And so we started re- regularly referring to us that way. And I think uh, because the shoe fit, uh, people uh, uh, use it. I, uh, we've talked a lot here today about ballparks and design and uh, architecture, but what I, what I definitely don't want to get lost is uh, you know, the amount of winning that you've been able to have in your career. Look, you're, one of, you're the only person, I think, maybe still ever, that has a Final Four watch. You said, oh, I was a little varsity athlete in Princeton. You were yeah. a basketball player right. with a Final Four. Uh, Super Bowl ring with the Redskins, World Series uh, rings, um, in uh, Baltimore and, the, and, and then with the Red Sox. What are some vivid memories that you have uh, when it comes to winning championships? Uh, is there anything, maybe specifically with the Red Sox from 04 or wherever you want to go, but what are some of the vivid memories that you have? Well, uh, certainly I have in my office at home uh, some uh, trophies and uh, lots of uh, uh, Super Bowl uh watches and paraphernalia and World Series championship rings, etc. So I see it uh, with some uh, regularity when I go into my office. Um, frankly, a lot of those experiences were, uh, were so fast. We were so sleep deprived, going through intensive uh, uh, playoff experiences that it took a while for it to set in in, <laughs> in each case. Now, certainly 2004 
was in many ways the most satisfying because it uh, broke a streak of 86 years. Uh, uh, do I say streak or should I say curse, curse. for 86 <laughs> years? And uh, and that was incredibly exciting. The aftermath, especially the re- the emotional reaction. I think I saw virtually every type of human emotion during that kind of season. <laughs> and uh, and the re- aftermath was uh, incredible uh, in terms of families celebrating with deceased members and uh, going to the uh, uh, cemeteries and placing baseballs. And um, and our trip home from St. Louis, we got in at 6.30 in the morning. I went right to City Hall and started planning the uh, the parade without any sleep that night. And uh, But the drive in from the airport was uh, memorable. People in their bathrobes sort of standing on cars, uh, expressing themselves so uh, emotionally. Uh, it was a wonderful feeling. I must say, uh, 2013, we won again in 2007. That was important because we had an internal slogan, any group of schlemiels can win once. <laughs> so we had to win a second time to validate it uh, for the world and for ourselves. And then uh, we won again in 2013, and that was the year of the uh, marathon bombing. And Boston Strong was the slogan. And I've never in my entire career seen a team adopt its city. I've seen cities adopt various appealing teams different years. But that team really adopted the city and said uh, and, and threw itself in uh, uh, into the process of helping the community heal from that bombing. And it uh, uh, certainly... Uh, started with uh, David Ortiz and his comments, uh, uh, profane as they may have been, uh, at Fenway Park after catching the terrorists. And uh, and it carried through the entire year. Boston Strong uh, became a, uh, a slogan that really meant something to the city and to the players. And uh, uh, players like uh, uh, South Slovakia, our catcher, um, uh, our left fielder, oh, come on, uh, what's his name? I'm blanking on his name. Uh, uh, Johnny Gomes. Johnny Gomes, yeah, was a sensational uh, um, leader of that, uh, of that movement, of that feeling. And so there was a real satisfaction that we could do something for our community after all that this community had done for the Red Sox over the course of a century. It was an amazing time. I remember, especially yeah. in 04, right? I was yeah. just fresh out of college. Yeah. I graduated college in May. I watched every game. Remember that little dive bar called Copperfield? Yes, Down? I do remember perfectly. So yeah. I watched every uh, ALCS game. You were old enough uh, to get in the Copperfield? Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry about how uh, <laughs> No, I was, I was old enough. Uh, yeah. And then we watched uh, all the World Series games from Copperfields. And I remember coming out of Copperfields, because as soon as uh, as soon as the Red Sox won, they shut down the bar. So they kick everybody out into the streets, and there's just seas of people, yeah. people up on light posts and trees, like swinging, screaming, yeah. and it was one of the more surreal feelings I've ever. Yeah, had. it was, it was awesome. our third year of ownership, and uh, we frequently repeated that uh, our astute business plan called for us to win. Uh, uh, and at the at the first press conference, December twenty first, two thousand and uh, and one, um, I I recited four fundamental obligations of ownership, and then I added uh, one that said there was not really a uh, um, 
an obligation of ownership as much as a commitment. And then the fifth thing I said was that we would eradicate the curse of the Bambino. <laughs> Being from Western Pennsylvania, I thought of it as my Joe Namath moment. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it went, uh, and of course, uh, we won in, in 04, then again in 07, then again in 13, and the Red Sox continued on in Continue. 18. So uh, in less than... Uh, 15 years we won four times it's a great feeling it's, it's, it's incredible so um one last topic i'd like to do before we uh before we wrap up is you are aggressive in your philanthropy and nothing more than uh dana farber and the oncologist which twice saved your life um yeah. talk about your role as the chairman of the jimmy fund and uh yeah and, and yeah. your uh, thoughts on you know, Dana, Dana Farber and uh, the importance of yeah. uh, giving back to communities. When I left the Red Sox at the end of 15 as an active president CEO and became president CEO emeritus, uh, I was approached by the Jimmy Fund to uh, come and join them as chairman. Um, and because the Red Sox had such a binding connection to the Jimmy Fund, I had such a passionate commitment to Dana Farber because, as you said, I had been treated uh, two different times by them, and uh, and they did some uh, some great work. My wife uh, uh, still uh, uh, expresses her gratitude regularly to the people over there for helping to uh, save my life. Uh, you might even delete the word help. I mean, <laughs> I think they, they did they, they did it, and. Uh, and it's a great, great institution. The relationship between the Red Sox and the Jimmy Fund is like no other in sports anywhere. It goes back over 65 years. It's uh, really an extraordinary uh, bond between us. So stepping into the role as chairman of the Jimmy Fund was an easy thing for me to do. I didn't know uh, that uh, uh, our ownership of the AAA Pawtucket uh, Red Sox was going to f fall into my it, it, into my responsibilities because my dear friend uh, Jim Skeffington was um, quite instrumental in that group, but he uh, had a uh, an un untimely, unfortunate uh, heart attack, and uh, I um, was uh, the other person to uh, step up and uh, and do that. So I've been involved in the Jimmy Fund and the uh, Pawtucket Red Sox and our move to uh, become eventually the Worcester uh, something or other. I'm not <laughs> sure what the name is going to be, but it will be a AAA affiliate of the Ralston Red Sox. Um, and so that's provided for a very, very busy uh, retirement. But I suppose I wouldn't have it any other way. If I had a, a paper route, I'd probably stay up all night the night before to make sure I couldn't get a second paper route or a third paper route or something like that. I don't know. It's a uh, it's a, uh, a crazy personality trait. It probably goes back to my days in uh, growing up in South Pittsburgh. Yeah, it's uh, and one of your one of your fourth uh, obligations of, of ownership is engagement in the in the community. You probably say that's for sure. More. Yeah, we, we uh, the first one has always been fielding a team that's worthy of the fan support. Fans have a right to expect that from ownership. Um, secondly, was to uh, market the team aggressively, um, and uh, the third thing was to uh, 
take the facility and making it as modern and as comfortable and as appealing and as warm and as hospitable as possible. That's another fundamental obligation of ownership. And the fourth I said was to be active, to be an active participant in the community, to be involved in the charitable and philanthropic activities of the town. It's not only good business, it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing for any business to do, but it's especially right for the sports teams to do because so much attention, adoration, uh, uh, involvement, support is directed to us. It's only um, appropriate and fair that we turn it around and uh, do it for the community that has embraced us so completely. Larry, uh, your career has just been, you know, filled with great successes, and uh, uh, you know, I'm I'm, uh, I'm so glad to be a part of it and see in uh, the the next step as we build Polar Park in in Worcester yeah. and your ownership of, of the club and uh, you know the new things that we're uh, that we're going to be able to do there that's unique and uh, and fun. So, There's an old uh, line, Rob, by Bob Dylan, I think, originally, where he said. If you're not busy being born, you're busy dying. <laughs> and so uh, now that I'm in my 70s, that saying has more meaning. <laughs> and so it's good to have you as a uh, co-pilot on this uh, effort to, uh, to build a high-quality uh, ballpark in a great baseball town like Worcester uh, with many of my old colleagues. And I, I think we have a challenge in front of us. Uh, but uh, I'm hoping we can rise to it and uh, make this uh, uh, this AAA affiliate of the Red Sox as great as it can be. Don't tell me about the business deals. Tell me about the people. And, uh, yeah, that's one. But there's people. another one version of that, too, Rob. Yeah. Don't tell me how stormy the sea is. Just tell me when the ships come in. <laughs> I've I heard that one a bunch. <laughs> I, yeah, I would go to Ed and say, well, we got this problem. He stop. Don't tell me how stormy the sea is. Just tell me when the ships come in. That's fantastic. So. Well, Larry, thank you so much for being on Front Office Features. I really appreciate your time. Okay, and Rob. I enjoyed it a lot. It's good to talk to the uh, baseball world out there. Thank well, you. Thank you. Thank you. And the first Front Office Features interview is in the books. I really enjoyed the conversation with Larry. I thought he gave some insightful comments uh, and some really good advice. Uh, for sports executives of all age, whether they're up and coming or uh, guys like Chris and I who have been in the game a little bit. So I uh, hope you enjoyed that. If you did, I uh, would appreciate uh, that you give our podcast a review. Uh, give that, click those five stars, uh, and uh, we'd very much appreciate it. Also, if you could give our social media feeds a, a follow. We're on everything, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn. You can also find Chris Valente and I uh, on LinkedIn. Please give us a follow. And also, please reach out to us. We would love to hear your comments and your feedback uh, from all of our podcasts. And if there's information that you're looking for, if there's people you think we should talk to, would love uh, your feedback, would love your engagement uh, with our podcast. Also, check out uh, Chris Valente's blog on Front Office Features. He gives some great insight uh, in the game, uh, in the industry, I should say, and uh, is gives a great perspective uh, on what's coming from Front Office Features. So hope you enjoyed it. Uh, get those subscriptions up. Tell all your friends, and uh, we look forward to having you next time. <laughs>